Good evening. The shooting of Adam Toledo in Chicago, was it another accident or an execution? The future of Afghanistan, we talked to a former United States Marine and a retired Army officer. Broadband for the needy in New York and Lower East Side residents march to preserve a park from the wrecking ball. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday, April 16th, 2021. There's outrage and greed in, and pardon me, there's outrage and grief in Chicago over newly released body camera video showing a Chicago police officer fatally shooting a 13-year-old last month. The shooting occurred less than a second after the boy appeared to drop a handgun, turn toward the officer, and begin raising his hands. Stop! My f***ing hell! Hey! Show me your f***ing hands! Stop it! Stop it! Shots fired, shots fired. Get an ambulance up here now. Look at me, look at me. Look at me. You all right? Where are you shot? Twenty-four and Sawyer in the alley. West alley. Need an ambulance. Got a gunshot victim. Shots fired by the police. Where are you shot, man? Where are you shot? Stay with me. Stay with me. All right, Tempo. We'll get an ambulance rolling. Toledo, who is Latinx, was shot by Officer Eric Stillman, who is white. Demonstrations were planned for later today. Some downtown businesses have boarded up their windows in expectation there could be unrest. But so far, protests that have occurred have been peaceful. Whether Stillman is charged is up to the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Jumpy nighttime body cam footage shows the officer chasing Toledo on foot down an alley for several seconds and yelling, police, stop, stop, right expletive now. As the teen slows down, Stillman yells, hands, hands, show me your hands, your expletive hands. Stillman opens fire and Toledo falls down. Cops say Toledo had a gun. No gun was found. A local resident and activist called the shooting an execution. Adam's mother described the child as a curious and goofy seventh grader who loved animals, riding his bike, and junk food. The shooting comes as the trial of Derek Chauvin, charged with murder and the killing of George Floyd last year, enters its final phase, summation arguments, before going to the jury in Minneapolis. On Sunday, 20-year-old Dante Wright was shot and killed by police officer Kim Potter in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, just 10 miles from the courthouse. Potter resigned and was charged with manslaughter. And in international news, Raul Castro confirmed he's handing over the leadership of the Cuban Communist Party to a younger generation that was full of passion and anti-imperialist spirit at its Congress that kicked off on Friday. Castro, 89, says he had the satisfaction of handing over the leadership to a group of party loyalists that had decades of experience working their way up the ranks. Castro told hundreds of party delegates gathered at a convention center in Havana, I believe fervently in the strength and exemplary nature and compensation comprehension of my compatriots. And as long as I live, I will be ready with my foot in the stirrups to defend the fatherland, the revolution and socialism. Russia expelled 10 U.S. diplomats today in retaliation for Washington's ejection of the same number of Russian diplomats. The round of sanctions and expulsions comes over alleged malign activity by Russia. The Russian government also suggested the U.S. ambassador leave, but made no order to that effect. Moscow left the door open, though, for dialogue and didn't kill off the idea proposed by President Joe Biden of a Putin-Biden summit.
The Russian foreign ministry said in a statement, now is the time for the United States to demonstrate good sense and turn its back on confrontational course. Russia-U.S. ties slumped to a new post-Cold War low last month after Biden said he thought Putin was a killer. And Moscow recalled his ambassador to Washington for consultations. The envoy has still not returned almost a month later. Washington says its own sanctions were payback for allegations of Russia's interfering in last year's U.S. elections, cyber hacking, bullying Ukraine and other alleged malign actions. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken made an unannounced visit to Afghanistan yesterday to sell Afghan leaders and a wary public on President Biden's decision to withdraw all American troops from the country and end America's longest war. The United States remains committed to the country despite Biden's announcement earlier this week that 3,500 U.S. troops will be coming home by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks on the United States. Experts say the pullout may be dangerous as the Taliban remains strong in Afghanistan and wants the U.S. withdrawal to be seen as a defeat. Department of Defense spokesperson John Kirby says there might be a need for even more troops to protect the ones leaving. But it is not out of the realm of the possible that for a short period of time, uh, there will have to be some additionally additional enabling capabilities uh, added uh, to Afghanistan to, again, help affect a safe, orderly, uh, and deliberately planned uh, drawdown of everybody um, uh, by the president's deadline here by, by, by early September. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't speak today with exactly what that would look like, how many, when they would be going in, but, but as we transitioned out of Iraq, of course, you, you, you know, you, it's, it's logical to assume that you may need some logistics help, maybe some engineering help. Um, uh, you, uh, you may have to add some force protection capabilities, again, temporary, just to make sure that the drawdown goes in a safe, orderly, and effective way. We would hope temporary is less than 20 years. Danny Shurgeon is a retired United States Army officer who is stationed in Afghanistan. He's director of the Eisenhower Media Network. He says the Democrats and Republicans both have it wrong in Afghanistan, admitting it would have been better to have avoided an invasion all after 9-11. Folks like Lindsey Graham, who were stuck in 2002 or three talking about how U.S. troops are going to be an insurance policy and the enemy is radical Islam writ large and this is a disaster. Every extremist camp is on steroids now that Biden is pulling, what, 3,500 troops max out of Afghanistan. At the same time, the idea that this is like a perfect move and, oh, man, he really got the Goldilocks solution right with this. And I'm a pretty big critic of the president in many ways or, or of the when he was a candidate particularly. Well, this isn't the worst. I would have liked to have seen troops go five years ago. I would have liked to have seen them go on May 1st. It's dangerous to move the goalposts to the right. It opens up opportunities for it to continue to delay. But his announcement was pretty firm. It's September 1st. That's it. No matter what the security conditions on the ground are. You just said September 1st. I just want to say, oh, yeah, September 11th. Because it was May 1st with President Trump, and then he came out and it was supposed to be September 11th, and now it is beginning May 1st. It's going to end by September 11th. I can understand why somebody would confuse the dates. I'm totally right. confused. I am concerned that the Taliban may go back to war on May 2nd. Any Americans who are killed between the 100 days, basically, between May 1st and September 10th, or May 2nd and September 10th, that blood is kind of unnecessarily spilt because... It is unclear to me exactly what the positives are 
what the security gains or the, or the foundational gains to Afghan society are going to be from such a small number of troops for such a relatively small period. If he pulls out on September 11th, if everyone leaves, he deserves credit for that because that is no small thing in a war that nobody has wanted to lose and nobody is willing to take any real risk on in terms of getting out. The fact that the Taliban is going to act like the North Vietnamese army and just fight all the way through to Saigon until we leave in a mess. I thought this was supposed to be a negotiated thing. The deal, essentially the best deal we were really going to get. I mean, it's really easy to hammer Trump about this and he deserves to be hammered. The reality is we lost this war or totally unable to win it. The Taliban's in a stronger position than ever before. The deal itself did not even require them to actually stop attacking the Afghan security forces. They've actually been hammering them hard for months. I mean, they're taking unsustainable casualties, so so unsustainable that they've classified it. You're not supposed to know how many of their security forces are being killed. The Americans is who they haven't attacked. I'm concerned, particularly in this situation, that they'll start attacking American bases again or, or any Americans that dare to leave their base on advisory missions or shoot down a helicopter or something. That concerns me. They are the, it is their country. And they're popular in large portions of said country. I fought on their home turf in Kandahar. I mean, it was like being in Taliban Fenway Park. It's a tough place to play. Um, and they're not popular everywhere and they're not popular with everyone down there. Uh, but we are going, you know, we're sort of breaking the deal. And, and it, the people in the establishment have said that the Taliban broke it a million times. And there's a lot less truth in that than is being made out. But I think that it's important to understand what you're saying, which is they they can be forgiven to a certain extent for saying, hey, we have every right to go back to war. I do think one of the smart things about leaving is that it pulls that card out of the Taliban's deck on September 12th, which is – that people don't like being occupied and the foreign white Christian faces that have been there for 20 years help motivate recruits because it's a big part of their recruiting sergeant, you know, shtick is, look, the Americans are here and they're occupying us. I think the war will continue afterwards and you may even see a sort of minor Tet offensive or maybe even a major one as the Americans leave. I could see the Taliban doing that and the war is going to continue it. I don't know exactly how it's going to end. The Americans being there, we are not saving anything by being there per se. In fact, in many ways, we fuel the Taliban narrative of foreign occupation. Is the U.S. going to learn anything from this? Unfortunately, I really don't know that we're going to learn a whole lot from this. I think maybe in the short term, um, the United States public, right, the American people don't have a lot of stomach and, and therefore there's not a lot of political stomach for major occupations and invasions like Iraq and Afghanistan. But I don't think that we've actually threaded the needle, right, or kind of discovered the mythical uniform of like a right way to do counterterrorism. We are still leaning on military solutions rather than like foundational economic and social solutions that largely have to come from the locals, leaning on things like law enforcement and treating this more as an intelligence and almost policing and crime problem than a military war problem. Because the minute you frame it as a war, you get all the blowback from war. Now, I'm not positive that we're actually going to learn a whole lot from the process here. Danny Surgeon is a retired U.S. Army officer who was stationed in Afghanistan. He's director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Matthew Ho is a retired Marine Corps major and a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. He says the United States is not really withdrawing from Afghanistan since thousands of U.S. forces are based in countries surrounding Afghanistan as well on ships at sea. There's been an evolution in uh, the way the United, the United States military fights over the last decade and a lot of it has been driven by technology. As we have seen in, say, the wars 
in the last decade in Syria or Iraq. Uh, what the United States has done is utilize proxy forces on the ground. So in the case of Syria, they used the Kurdish forces or they used Sunni forces, including jihadist groups, to try and achieve their aims while providing firepower primarily through aircraft and drones. This is also what we've seen the last several years in Afghanistan as well, where the United States, in addition to the air power, the drones and the manned aircraft, they also provide commandos. The bulk of the ground forces are primarily local forces, client forces, proxy forces. And then in these wars, the United States provides the firepower and the specialized commandos, the guys who kick in doors and shoot people in the head. What this does, Paul, is this gives everybody in the Pentagon what they want. It gives the special operations and CIA people the shadow wars that they want, the covert wars that they want. It gives the Army the ability to concentrate on the wars it wants by stationing tanks on the Russian border. It gives the Navy and the Air Force what they want, war with China and North Korea, because that justifies $13 billion aircraft carriers, $8 billion submarines, $500 million bombers. There has been this evolution that has been, one, of course, driven by technology, but also driven by the policy and budgetary desires of the military. The United States will still be present there in Afghanistan, even if all 3,500 acknowledged troops are withdrawn. You're still going to have thousands of special operations and CIA personnel in Afghanistan, around Afghanistan. You're still going to have manned aircraft and drones around Afghanistan on land bases or aircraft carriers. And of course, at sea, you have literally dozens of ships that can fire hundreds of cruise missiles. The idea that the United States is militarily leaving Afghanistan is, is not accurate. Russia left Afghanistan with its tail between its legs in defeat. Osama bin Laden, the Taliban, claimed the U.S. would leave the same way. Looking back 20 years, who was right? Oh, I think bin Laden was right. Bin Laden famously said in 2004, he said, all you need to do, and I'll paraphrase him because I won't get the quote correct, but he said, all you need to do is send two Mujahideen to the furthest points on the planet, raise the banner of jihad, and the American generals will come running and they will like, bankrupt themselves economically and morally. That's absolutely the case. These wars have been incredibly counterproductive. You have a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who like to style themselves as geopolitical realists, as if this is all a giant game of risk. You have to look at it and say, look, in 2001, the United States government said there are four terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now the United States government, after 20 years of occupation in Afghanistan, plus the entire rest of the global war on terror, right? Iraq, Libya, Syria, all through Africa, Guantanamo Bay, etc. Now, again, 2001, there's four terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now they say, the U.S. government says there's more than 20 terror groups in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the same with the number of al-Qaeda. In 2001, the U.S. government said there were a total of 400 al-Qaeda members worldwide, right? And over the last two decades, what have we seen? We've seen al-Qaeda explode. Tens of thousands of members, branches and affiliates in dozens of countries. They've taken over entire cities. It's really startling when you look at it. And it's just not confined to Afghanistan. Say, look at Africa. In the year that the United States stands up Africa Command, so in 2008, 
that year, there's a total of, of less than 300 terror attacks across all of Africa. Ten years later, there are more than 3,000 terror attacks in Africa. It's really quite demonstrative. It's just If you just look at just the, the basic numbers that we have that we understand terrorism, insurgencies, how beneficial these wars have been for who we call our enemies. And that's Matthew Ho, a retired United States Marine Corps major and a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. Meanwhile, a Taliban spokesman warned today problems will be compounded. If the U.S. misses the May 1st withdrawal deadline, the insurgent movement has yet to respond to Biden's surprise announcement that the pullout would only start would only start on that date. And Dr. Anthony Fauci and CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky were among the witnesses testifying on ending the pandemic at a hearing held by the House Coronavirus Crisis Subcommittee. Topics included testing for migrant refugees at the southern border and a heated exchange between Representative Jim Jordan and Dr. Fauci on what on uh, whether or not the congressman was ranting. It's a yes or no question. Should everybody comply? Everybody coming citizen? into the United States by air is supposed to have a test of one to three days before coming and three to five okay, days. Well, then let me just advise you that, that, that this, the director of Homeland Security has testified that that's not happening. The chair now recognizes the chair Waters. I would like to tell Dr. Fauci that you literally saved millions of folks who would only listen to your advice based on what was happening with the Trump administration and the president uh, of the free world, Mr. Trump, who told, who disregarded, first of all, the film and took too long to get started with any response to it. Dr. Walensky, you did recently describe racism as a serious public health threat. If you work in medicine, you see that people who are racially diverse, this is about where they live, where they work, how they travel. Over the first six months of 2020, there was one year of life expectancy lost for all Americans, 2.7 years of life expectancy lost for African Americans, and 1.9 years of life expectancy lost for Hispanic Americans. The chair now recognizes Mr. Jordan for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Dr. Fauci, well, in your written statement, you say now is not the time to pull back on masking, physical distancing and avoiding congregate settings. When is the time? If I have a number, it would have to be my best estimate. And that would be that the number of infections per day are well below 10,000 per day. At that point and up to that point, there would be a gradual pulling back of some of the restrictions you're talking about. You've opined on all kinds of issues. Give us your best guess then. I just did. No, you didn't. You didn't give us a time. What, when do you think this is going to, are we going to be doing, are we going to be here two years from now wearing masks? No, I don't. And asking Dr. Don't. Fauci the same question? Well, let, let me, let me answer your ranting again. Let me no, just. I'm not ranting. Yes, you are. When is it going to end? When they can get their liberties back. You know, you I call that ranting. I actually call it standing up for the Constitution, which I take an oath to uphold, Dr. Fauci. I'm not 100 percent sure well, how many people will want to be vaccinated. The chair recognizes Mr. Kristner Morthy. Dr. Fauci, the number one Facebook post today about vaccines is Tucker Carlson's suggesting they don't work. There are calls now to take down his post by Facebook because it's become the most engaged post and fueling the anti-vaxxer movement online. Congressman, I'm really not 
expert enough about okay dr kessler dr kessler this is your beat uh, vaccine hesitancy vaccines work uh, any suggestion that they don't would be false and misleading Excerpts from today's hearing held by the House Coronavirus Crisis Subcommittee. The committee chair is Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In New York, Governor Cuomo was in Buffalo. Western New York has seen a spike in COVID positivity rates, and the governor says he's concerned not enough people there are being vaccinated. Uh, Overall statewide positivity is 2.8%. Statewide deaths... Uh, 43. We remember them in our thoughts and prayers. Hospitalizations, 3,800. That's good news. That's down 79. That's the lowest since uh, 1130, which is basically Thanksgiving. So we are fully back at this point before the holiday surge. ICU down 18, intubations down 16. Positivity continues to decline. And that's Governor Cuomo earlier today. The governor also used the opportunity to sign a bill providing cheap and free Internet broadband service to poor New Yorkers. The new service will have all the bells and whistles and cost just $15 a month. All Internet providers must offer high-speed Internet at an affordable cost, $15 a month period, all equipment, all fees, etc. That's the cost that they must provide to any low-income family in this state and low-income of people who qualify for governmental assistance. That, my friend, will democratize access to society and services. The governor added that the state will subsidize free service for folks who can't afford the $15. Meanwhile, in breaking news, the Democratic lawmaker leading the state assembly's impeachment investigation today said Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration was formally told to not retaliate against potential witnesses in the case and to preserve documents. The lawmaker, Assembly Judiciary Committee Chairman Charles Levine, also confirmed the investigation is reviewing reports related to the publishing of the governor memoir last year. In addition to allegations of sexual harassment, COVID-19 reporting in nursing homes and reported defects on the construction of the Mario Cuomo Bridge. In all instances, Cuomo has denied any wrongdoing. Lawmakers say they've gotten more than 100 calls on a hotline set up to receive tips. And on the Lower East Side, residents will be gathering on Sunday at noon at Tompkins Square Park. From there, they'll march to the East River Amphitheater. The organizers say they'll be chanting, singing, bringing people out to join the festivities. The residents say they want to stop New York City from destroying a 55-acre East River Park to build a $1.45 billion flood control project supported by Mayor Bill de Blasio. An organizer with East River Park Action is Tommy Loeb. No bid that has been accepted for the East River Park portion of this project. The only place that work has begun and is continuing is from 14th to 25th Street. If you remember, um, they only received two bids for the East River Park portion, and one was $53 million over, and one was $117 million over. Those are being reviewed, and then they have to go to the controller and be approved before any work can begin. So to say that work, to imply that work is beginning next week, 
is just not accurate. The other thing that um, is not true is we have no guarantee of what the phasing will be. Each time we ask, they can't tell us what will be open, when it will be open, how long it will be open. So that's also a very misleading, inaccurate statement. What Commissioner Springer said was totally disingenuous. He did talk about the fact that the park is being prepared for the future. But even he admits, but he doesn't really tell you the full story, that there's a possibility that within 30 years they would have to add another two feet to the park. What he forgot to say is that means they have to totally destroy the park again to add another two feet. There is no scientist on Earth now who is worth their salt who can tell you what sea level rise will be in 30 years, in 50 years, or as he described, in 100 years. What's the alternative? What we asked for was interim flood protection while everybody on Earth figures out what climate change is going to be, what sea level rise is going to look like, and we make some rational planning. This is like a knee-jerk reaction, and it's going to disrupt the community for, they say, five years. It'll be more than ten years. I did want to put a plug in. This Sunday, we're having a rally in March. It starts in Tompkins Square Park at 12 noon, and we're going to work our way down to East River Park and then to the amphitheater. There's going to be entertainment. There's going to be poetry. There'll be some Reverend Billy and his choir will be there. We're going to make this a community celebration. This is turning into a big fight. This is bigger than we th I thought it was. We have a bunch of dedicated Lower East Side residents who I don't think they were expecting to put up a fight. It shows how much people love this park. We have no professional paid staff. We are just volunteers who believe in this park so much that we're willing to put our own time into this. Tommy Loeb is an organizer with East River Park Action, and as he said, the event will be on the Lower East Side where residents will be gathering on Sunday at noon. That's Sunday at noon at Tompkins Square Park. From there, they'll march to the East River Amphitheater. The organizers say they'll be chanting, singing, bringing people out to join in the festivities. And that's some of the news for Friday, April 16th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.